the Bible together, and we're going to be in Romans chapter 10, Paul's letter to the Romans, and chapter 10. Paul writes, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. For I can testify about them that they're zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. Since they didn't know the righteousness that comes from God and sought to establish their own, they didn't submit to God's righteousness. Christ is the end of the law, so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. We started to look at this a few weeks back, these few verses, where Paul is expressing his great concern for his own countrymen. Uh, And what he says about them is that they are zealous for God. That would seem to be good, very enthusiastic about religion, and not just any religion, but the God of Israel. They worship him, they're zealous for him. But he says there's a problem. They are zealous for God, but their zeal isn't based on knowledge. It's not based on the knowledge that comes out of relationship simply because they are seeking to establish their own righteousness. That is to say, their understanding of God is that if you're good enough, he will accept you. And they haven't understood that no one is good enough and no one ever can be good enough. And that God gives righteousness to those who believe in his son. Far from accepting that, they crucified God's son. So zealous for God, but their zeal isn't based on knowledge. For Paul, of course, he used to be amongst them, but now things have changed. Now he is zealous for God, and his zeal for God comes out of knowing that through faith in Jesus Christ, all his sin is dealt with, All his guilt is taken away. The punishment has been accepted by Jesus and he, by grace, is righteous. It's a gift of God. And his zeal for God comes out of that security of knowing God has saved him. God loves him because of Jesus. And that's an eternal position. It's what we've been singing about this morning. It's what we've been enjoying in all the songs that were sung. The fact of wonderful, wonderful grace that Jesus took our place so that we are called heavenwards and we will meet him in the air. That's the great hope that we have. Paul's got that hope as well. And so his zeal comes out of a sense of security And every exhortation, every encouragement, every provocation that Paul brings to those who are going to read this letter comes out of the assumption that those who are hearing him also have that security. And so he is able to say, as uh, in chapter 12, verse 1, Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. Now, if it were not for those words, in view of God's mercy, you think, that is a very big ask. What are you saying, Paul? Hand our lives over completely? That's a bit heavy. No, in view of God's mercy. It's because you're secure, he says, because I know that you know the grace of God, therefore I can bring this to you. 
And everything that he says comes out of his own experience of God's grace, and he is assuming that in those to whom he writes. It's important that we understand that. Now, Paul here speaks about his passionate concern. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. Back at the start of chapter 9, he expressed that great concern. I speak the truth in Christ, he said there. I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it in the Holy Spirit. I've got great sorrow, unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off for Christ, from Christ for the sake of my brothers, those of my own race, the people of Israel. He clearly feels passionately about this. And here he's expressing it again. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. Uh, he, he's concerned for them. But as we read those words, we encounter there a mystery and a possible misunderstanding. The mystery is this. In the previous chapters, back in chapter 8, for example, he has made one of these wonderful statements about God. In uh, chapter 8, verse 28, he says, We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him. Then he says, Who have been called according to his purpose. He goes on, those God foreknew, those God knew beforehand, he predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. He's saying, we know that in everything, God's working for our good simply because he called us. And he called us not on a whim, not some random thing. He decided beforehand to do that. He knew us beforehand, before we were even born. He made the plan beforehand that we should become like Jesus. And therefore he called us, he justified us, he glorified us. It's a done deal. All God's work. And he goes on in chapter 9. Uh, he quotes verse, in verse 15. I will have mercy on whom? I have mercy. I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. It doesn't therefore depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. Very clear. We are saved because God decided. It doesn't de depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. You'd think the logical conclusion of that is, then it is not worth praying for anyone to be saved because God has already decided who should be saved and it's all been planned before we were ever born and nothing depends on our desire or effort. So since the book is closed, the list is already drawn up and, and it's all decided, we've just got to say, well, what will be will be. Really, we've just got to stand and watch to see who actually gets saved. That was always God's plan. We can't affect the issue. Would be a reasonable way of understanding. Paul, having said all that he said in chapters 8 and 9, then says, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. So here we have God's unchanging predetermined plan linked with 
prayer for salvation. I would suggest to you that's a mystery. It is a mystery. Please don't ask me to explain it. I will simply say it's a mystery. And it's, it's not an option. We'll choose one or the other. They're both there. And somehow, in ways that our little minds can't comprehend, both are equally valid. God has predestined, and we pray. How does that work? Well, it's a mystery. The two things go together. A possible misunderstanding, of course, is that God will do what he wants to do, and therefore prayer does not really matter. Prayer is a kind of option. Prayer is something you do, you know you should do it, but you can't really get your head around why, because God will do what he wants to do anyway. And God's plans invariably succeed. In all things, God works for the good of those who love him. God will work it out. So the misunderstanding is, prayer is one of those things we should do, but why? And you, you, you live a busy life. It's hard to somehow fit praying in. You know you should, but not really clear why. You know it's, some, it's an ought, but it's a kind of option if there's time in your busy life. And you know how it is. You, you come to the end of a day, life has been hectic, it's been difficult at work, you get home, you're tired. When you're tired, are you likely to do what you know you really should do or what you just want to do? Well, probably you'll do what you just want to do, which is chill out. You're tired after all. So prayer is one of those things you know you should do, but, well, it's all going to work out anyway. So why pray? That is a misunderstanding. And it's a misunderstanding because it's a failure to recognize some rather important facts. Back in chapter 8 and um, verse 14... Paul said, those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you didn't receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear. You received the spirit of sonship, the spirit of adoption. And by this spirit, by him, we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit, we're God's children. We have come into a relationship with Almighty God. And we are allowed to not just come on our hands and knees before Him with our face down, cringing before the great ruler of the universe. He invites us to call Him Father. Father. The Spirit testifies with us we're sons of God. We've come into this wonderful, wonderful relationship. And the Spirit within us cries, Father. And then in chapter, uh, back in chapter 5 and verse 2, speaking about this wonderful relationship we've come into, it says, through the Lord Jesus Christ, we've gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. 
Praying is not something we should do. Hey, we're missing the point. We've come into relationship with God. He's our Father. We're allowed to speak to Him. Now, it's a bit foolish, surely, to be granted a privilege like that and think, I'm too tired, like it's something trivial. This is God. And He says, you're my children, come. I'm tired. I've got other things on my mind. Rather play a game on the computer. God! Hey, are we missing something here? Have we failed to understand that it's all about relationship? It's all about knowing God, being allowed to know Him, being allowed to have communication with the one who rules the universe. We know God. It's amazing. There's a misunderstanding. If we just view prayer as something we should do, can't really understand why. The reason why is we're sons of God. We're his children. We want to talk. Well, Paul clearly wants to talk. He says, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. Or the text actually says, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. Of course, when chapter divisions got put in, there was always the possibility you'd start reading just that verse 1 and say, them? Who's that? You'd have to look back into the previous chapter and see that's the Israelites. So the translators very helpfully saved you that effort and put the word in there. So Paul is saying, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. His concern then is salvation. His passionate Heart's desire and prayer, clearly passion there. His passion is that they may be saved. Now, why is that his passion? Well, partly, and I guess mainly, because he has himself been saved. He understands where they're coming from because he came from there. He grew up amongst them. He knows their way of thinking. He knows their lifestyle. And he knows they don't know God. Yeah, they're zealous for God. They don't know him. They've just got religion. They haven't got relationship with the living God. And it matters, not just because he's got something good and he wants them to. It's more than that. Well, let's see in what way it's more than that. Back forward into 1 Timothy, Paul's first letter to Timothy. In 1 Timothy chapter 1. Paul speaks about his previous experience. And he says in verse 12, 1 Timothy 1 verse 12, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has given me strength, that he considered me faithful, appointing me to his service, even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man. He was, he was zealous for God, but he didn't know God And in his zeal for God, he, unbeknown to himself, he was actually opposing God. He was blaspheming, he was persecuting, and yes, he was violent in his zeal. So he says, even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners 
of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. Do you get there? Paul sharing his background. He sees how bad he was. He was opposing God. He was actually hounding those that God loves, having them thrown into prison and some died. He was standing there when one who God dearly loved, Stephen, is being stoned to death. And Paul is there thinking, this is a good idea. And that's how bad he was. And he says, God saved me. God had mercy on me. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me, the worst of sinners. He has been saved. And because he's been saved, it affects the way he views other people. He's thrilled by the grace of God. And it's not just he wants other people to share the, the thrill and the experience he's got. He sees what a dangerous position they're in. He, he knows what he deserved, and he looks around at others just like him. Religious people, yes. They're in the temple, they're in the synagogue, whatever. They're religious, they don't know God. And because they don't know God, they are in desperate, desperate danger. He's referred to that back in chapter 1 of Romans. Romans chapter 1 and verse 18, he says, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. God's holy anger. God's wrath against sin. Now, if we don't realize the meaning of sin, we'll never understand that it's it's reasonable that God should be angry with it. If we just have a bland idea, God is love, then, well, he'll just love everyone, won't he? Well, yes, he does, and he hates sin. And you can't detach sin from the person who is sinning. And so the wrath of God, the anger of God, faces people at the end. We will all come before God And those whose sin is not dealt with, there is just this to look forward to, if that's not the wrong expression, is this to expect God's blazing, fearsome hatred of the sin that sticks to us because we willingly did it. Paul's aware of that. Paul's aware of it. That's what motivates him to preach the gospel. He wants people to be saved. Because that's what they face. In chapter 2 of Romans, verse 8, he says, For those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil. First for the Jew, yeah, they may be religious, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. Paul is gripped by this. He sees people 
blindly going towards this, unaware of their danger, unaware of their guilt. They think they're all right. Not done anything seriously wrong. They don't realize what sin is about. He thought he was all right. He thought he was serving God, very zealous for God. He was opposing God. He was the worst of sinners. You might say, Paul, it's a bit of an overstatement. No, he knows the truth. And he sees what faces people. He knows the blindness of the Israelites because he used to share it. Grew up amongst them. He knows their mindset. And the whole thing matters desperately to him. And it's painful when he sees people unaware, oblivious of their predicament, and they think they're all right. Say, oh God, the only thing you can do is pray. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God is that they could be saved. The, the, the concern of his heart causes him to pray. So, prayer. Prayer comes out of the desire that's in your heart. Prayer comes out of passion. Prayer is not something that we should do. Oh, we should pray. Oh, yeah, I ought to pray. Oh, but I'm a bit tired, a bit busy. No, prayer comes out of what's in your heart. And if it doesn't come out of what's in your heart, it's really a little bit pointless praying, I guess. So the issue is not, we must pray. But the issue is, hey, we must care. We must, it must matter to us about the people around us. And it's when we care, when we really see their predicament, what that does to us will cause us to pray. Those who care deeply will never need to be exhorted to pray. We never need any encouragement to pray. Those who care deeply, well, what do you do about it? You call on God because we've got access. Access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. There's something we care passionately about, and hey, we've got God's ear. We can talk to him about it. We can bring it to him. Well, let's pray. It follows logically from understanding sin, understanding the fearsome reality of hell, and knowing very clearly there's only one way to be saved because there's only ever been one Savior, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. And those who have not put their faith totally in him, there's only one one destiny awaiting them. And it doesn't bear thinking about, hey, let's pray. Let's call on God. Let's get down before God and plead with him. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. He's praying here for an entire ethnic group. The Israelites, for them, Israel, people he knew, and lots of people, hundreds of people, thousands of people he didn't know. But it's just a whole group. He knows that they don't know God. And he cared that they were lost. And he knew they needed to be saved. And so he prayed. Praying, then, is not just a thing in and of itself, we ought to pray. No, we ought to care. 
And if we care deeply, we will pray. We'll pray by ourselves. We'll pray with other people. Jesus, as far as we can see from the Gospels, very frequently prayed alone. He also longed to pray with others. In uh, Luke chapter 5, verse 15, we read the news about him. That's about Jesus spread all the more so that crowds of people came to hear him to be healed of their sicknesses. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. You might have thought, Jesus, there's nothing really to pray about here. It's all going so well. The crowds are flocking around. He needs God. And he, he wants to talk to his heavenly Father. It's about relationship. It's about being a son of God. He's the son of God. He talks to his Father. And there are people coming, coming to him with all these needs. He needs to pray. He often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. Chapter 6 of Luke, verse 1. Uh, so uh, not, uh, not verse 1. Um, verse 12, sorry. One of those days... Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray, out alone. And he spent the night praying to God. Hey, I don't know about you, I run out of prayer quite quickly. I guess the reason is I don't care enough. I haven't got enough people weighing on my heart to cause me to pray longer. We don't need to multiply words for the sake of saying, oh, I prayed for this length of time. I guess Jesus didn't go out and say, I'm going to try and have a night of prayer. Well, he may have done, but I kind of get the feeling he went out to pray. And just so much, so much, so many. Hey, the night's gone. The more you've got on your heart, the more you pray. And Jesus gets alone to pray. And it's not a matter of making a big show of it, of praying at great length just to show off. He says in Matthew chapter 6, verse 5, when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites. They love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by men. Tell you the truth, they've received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, Pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. When you pray, don't keep on babbling like pagans. They think they'll be heard because of their many words. Don't be like that. Your Father knows what you need before you ask him. So it's not putting on a show. It's not just saying the same thing over and over again. In fact, the only person you really want to see you is your Heavenly Father. It doesn't matter if no one else knows. But you want him to know that you're before him, you're talking to him, and you're talking to him about the things that really, really matter. And then sometimes we will pray together. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 18, Matthew chapter 18, wonderful promise. Verse 19, he said, again, I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything you ask for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three come together in my name, there am I with them. Hey, gathering together to pray. 
agreeing together, coming before God with a common mind, calling on him together. God says, Jesus says there, whatever you don't pray for like that, it will be done for you because I'm there with you. And then so poignant in Mark chapter 14, well, it's not just there, but we look at it there in Mark chapter 14, where Jesus faces the terrible, awesome climax of his whole life, namely the way he's going to die. He wants people to pray with him. Yes, he's got to go through this alone. But before going through it alone, he wants people to pray with him. And the people to pray with him are his disciples, obviously. Why? They've just promised that they will stick with him to the end. Well, in Mark chapter 14, verse 32, they went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him and began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. He said to them, stay here and keep watch. Going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything's possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet not what I will, what you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, you asleep? Could you not keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you'll not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. He wanted people to pray with him. They couldn't, couldn't keep going for an hour, just fell asleep. And he was left alone. We pray together. We pray by ourselves. But we pray because we care. And it's that caring. It's being able to say with Paul, my heart's desire and prayer to God. It's because of that heart's desire that we will pray. You won't be able to detach us from praying. It says of the early church in, in Acts chapter 1, it says they devoted themselves to prayer. And the word devoted is a word in another context could mean they stuck to, they adhered to, they were glued to it. You couldn't detach them from it because they've got some big concerns. And Paul here's got a heart's desire that causes him to pray. So I have to ask myself, do I care? To what extent? Do I care about Sheffield? To what extent does it get to me that we're in a city of half a million people and how many thousands know God through the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, maybe one or two thousand. Well, let's be generous. Let's be optimistic. Five thousand. It's half a million people in the city how much do I care about people facing hell? How much do I care about the people I see around me in the street where I live? How much, I was going to say, I could say to you, how much do you care about the people you work with? Fortunately, I can't say that about the people I work with, that they're going to hell. No, no, no. The people on the staff here all know the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior, but where you work in your college, in your class at school, 
How much do you care? How much do I care? Does it get to me? How much do I care about the United Kingdom? How much do I care about the evident moral collapse of our nation? That things that God says he hates are publicly approved of. How much do I care? How much do I care that children in the schools are being taught things that God says he hates and they're being taught it as good? How much do I care? How much do I care about other nations? How much do I care about what the press have called the Arab Spring? How much do I care about what's happening in Egypt? How much do I care about what's going to happen in Syria? What about the Christians there? What does it mean to them? What does it mean to them in Yemen? What does it mean to them in Palestine? How much do I care? Or am I just taken up with me? my world. Paul said, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites, he cares about people. How much do I care about the way the whole economic system of the world is on the verge of collapse? And how much do I care what that's going to mean to vulnerable people? How much do I care about the despair that's going to come? The panic, the fear that's going to, does it matter? Or do I just say, as long as I'm all right? That's all I care about. Jesus said, when his disciples fell asleep, he said, couldn't you watch? He said, watch and pray. Keep your eyes open. See what's happening and pray. Well, brothers and sisters, we need to see what's happening. We need to see this unique point of history at which we're living, quite apart from the normal situation of the majority of people don't know God, therefore they're going to hell. Hey, do we care? Do we care? Does it get to us? Have we somehow got immunized, perhaps? We've immunized ourselves So it doesn't get to us. Why don't we want it to get to us? Well, maybe, because if it did, it would affect the way we live and we'd start praying. Hey, Paul cares. He was there himself. He knows the mindset. He used to live among them. And he sees what they're blindly walking towards. And he prays, oh God. The God who is sovereign, the God who is able to turn people's minds, is able to turn people's hearts, he's calling on that God who can save unwilling people. He's a wonderful God. He's a God who has mercy on unwilling people because he had mercy on Paul. Paul was absolutely sure he was right. And God changed him. It was God. Not Paul's will. It was God. God confronted him on that road. He said, why are you resisting my authority? Lord. Paul's eyes opened and he sees God. That, that's the God we pray for. The God who can change the people who live next door to you. The people who live in your street. The people you work with. Who can change a city. 
When you have a gratitude, a profound gratitude for salvation, then you do start praying for other people because it matters. And yes, if the Spirit of God is in you, he opens your eyes to see what's happening in the world, what's happening in the nation. You, you want to watch the news, not because it's encouraging, but because there's your prayer list. You see what's happening. You pray. And for how long? Well, as long as it takes. Now, as I was looking at this, and obviously it's been living with me for a few weeks, really, because it's a few weeks since I last preached, I've just been aware that in talking about the need to pray, there can be different reactions. You see, I reckon that we are all basically allergic to some pretty biblical concepts like command, rebuke, warn, exhort. We don't like those words, do we? And we'd say, wait a minute, that's pressure, that's pressure, that's, that's legalism. No, we believe in grace. And Anything that sounds like a command, or worse than that, anything that sounds like a possible rebuke, oh, that's not grace. Well, Paul, in talking about addressing a different topic, but in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17, says to Timothy, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, Oh, that's heavy. Not to put their hope in wealth. Verse 18, command them to do good. Wow, we don't talk like that. Paul, you need to know something about grace. Huh, wait a minute. He's the apostle of grace. That's who he is. And it's because he assumes they're in the grace of God that they know that they're righteous by faith. It is safe to say to people who are very secure in the grace of God, Now, you know something? You're wrong. If you're not in the grace of God, if if a preacher says, or anyone in authority says, you're wrong, you shrivel. But if you're securing grace, say, come on, hit me. (laughs) I want to hear God, and if I'm wrong, correct me. I know that people hear pressure where there isn't any. And they look... For a, they, they, they identify the hidden agenda. Can I assure you, there is no hidden agenda simply because it isn't hidden. I want to be very blunt. I believe, and I want to encourage you, exhort you, do I dare say command. It's time to care. It is time to care. And if we care, we'll pray. Our nation, the world, the nations of the world are on a bit of a precipice right now. And we can just be kind of oblivious. And we're not really sure about, is hell a reality? Some questions about it. Not in the Bible, there aren't. God is very clear. So we'll pray. We'll pray. Our track record on prayer as a church, by some standards, is pretty good. 
by other standards, it's depressing. Depends what standards you want to use. See, you read stories about times in history when God has been moving by his spirit and you see people putting down their tools at lunchtime to gather together and pray. You see people using a bank holiday to gather together and pray. Every opportunity they want to pray. Why? Because God's stirring their hearts and they care about people. And then you hear hundreds of thousands of people get saved. Because God's working. People care. They pray. They, they put aside other legitimate things. They pray, and thousands get saved. Our track record on prayer is not like that. Now, statistically, um, well, statistically, I think it's pretty depressing that actually less than half the church would come to a time of prayer, and some leave early. Some arrive late. <laughs> Jesus said, can't you pray for an hour? And, okay, yeah, I'm addressing the able-bodied who don't have childcare issues, health issues, or whatever. I'm saying, what I'm saying is not please come to the prayer meeting. I am not saying that. I'm saying please care. And please care so passionately that wild horses would not keep you away that you just want to come and cry to God for Sheffield. You want to cry to God for the people that you know. You want to cry to God for a move of God's Spirit in this city where a sizable number, a majority of people, know Him. Where they want to flock into the football stadia and there'll be no room for football, hallelujah, but people are there to pray. They want to see God. Doesn't that matter to you? And our nation. And you hear what politicians are saying. You see how they're behaving. Oh, God, have mercy on us. It's like the tide has gone out. But when the tide goes out, it can come in again. Oh, God, don't you care? Don't you care about other nations? Oh, I care. We must pray. It's time to pray. It's time to call on God. Because it's time for God to do something. It's desperately time for God to do something. Don't you believe that? Jesus gave some pretty stark warnings in Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24, verse 37, he says... As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying, giving in marriage. Up to the day Noah entered the ark, and they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came, took them all away. That's how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Isn't that horrible? Isn't that horrible? And isn't it even more horrible if God's people are amongst those who are totally oblivious of what's happening? Totally oblivious. Just eating and drinking, marrying, giving him... Normal life goes on, we're having fun. Don't realize what's at the door. 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul gives a similar prediction to Timothy chapter 3 
Verse 1, he says, mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, and he goes on, he says, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Turn the music up, we're having fun. Unaware. These are the last times. There will be terrible times in the last days. Oblivious, just having fun. The world is in turmoil at this time. And we can just be having fun. Yeah, we're tired. We want to go out with our mates. Wait a minute. It's time to seek God. Well, it's time to care. It's time to wake up to reality here in Romans in chapter 13, just a few chapters further on. Verse 11, Paul there says, um, chapter 13, verse 11, he says, Do understand the present time. The hour has come for you to wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. There is a day. We've been singing about it. The Lord will come. Understand, watch, understand the present time. The hour has come to wake up. The night's nearly over. The day is almost here. Let us put aside the deeds of darkness, put on the armor of light, and so on. Paul is living in, with a sense of reality. He knows what's going on, and he, he sees the desperate predicament of people he loves. So my heart's desire and my prayer is that they may be saved. Well, do we care? Do we care about the rest? Then we'll pray. Are you saved? You come here this morning and you're hearing all of this. You're hearing about the wrath of God. It makes you feel uncomfortable and you think, hey, do I know that I'm saved? Don't just hear about it. Receive the truth. Believe in Jesus. He is the only Savior. Many of us here know that he has saved us. If you don't know that, if you've got any doubt about it, please don't delay Everyone needs to know the Lord Jesus Christ died in their place, took their sin, and through faith in him, they're justified. Everyone needs to know that. If you don't know that personally, don't make excuses. Don't put it off. Come and speak with us. We'd love to lead you to Christ. But if you do know him, then what about people around you who don't, people who live with you, around you, people you work with? It's time to care. Therefore, it's time to pray. Father, help us. Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus, you knew the reality when you went to that garden 